Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church Podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. All right, thanks everyone. I like how Alicia said we get to um, a diverse range of people because I'm pretty white, so it's nice to be contributing to diversity in some way. <laughs> Last week, um, Ben preached from the start of, of Luke 12, uh, and we're following on from that. He explained that we're doing a series uh, of what's called sort of biblical exegesis, where we go through a passage and have a look at what it means and what we can draw out of it. So we're carrying on with that today. Um, so the passage that we follow on from is Jesus teaching. Um, large crowd is gathered. Uh, Jesus talks a little bit about sort of heaven and hell and thinking about where our life is going and, and what we're sowing into and what's important. Um, if even the mention of hell freaks you out or has theological questions for you, Benj did a great podcast on that. It was actually the first time I ever heard him preach. We weren't going to this church yet, and I was interested in that topic, and so I listened to that podcast, and if you listen to that, approximately two years after listening to that, you'll probably be preaching based on that timeline. Uh, But it is really good. It answers a lot of questions, but also raises a lot of questions and gives you things to ponder. So Jesus mentions that sort of thing. He, he has the famous verse that, you know, every hair on our head is numbered. And so it makes that point that even though there are big decisions for us to make and there's eternal destiny for all of us and issues of consequence, God knows the, the very tiny details of our life and what's going on in our hearts. And he knows us so we can feel safe in that, that um, he knows each one of us closely and we can, we can trust him. So um, he wraps up that you know, in Luke, Luke wraps up that sort of paragraph by saying, then lastly, you know, if you are struggling and persecuted and you're you know, dragged into synagogues or before rulers and have to explain what you believe, don't stress. The Holy Spirit will give you words to say. And then quite cleverly, Luke follows on with this passage um, where Jesus is put on the spot and has to give a good answer. So, Uh, Jesus models this straight away. So reading now from verse 13 from Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. There's a lot in that passage. Um, So to start with, let's go through verse by verse and just kind of break it down and then we'll see, okay, what can we take away from this or, or what does it mean? How can we apply it or develop our understanding of our role in the world and how this means 
something to us. So looking at verse 14, firstly, Jesus says, who appointed me to judge you? Now, if there's anyone in the world that I would want judging issues for me, it would be Jesus. If anyone was qualified to say, yeah, I can be your judge, it's probably him. But he respects that we all have genuine authority in our lives. We have genuine authority in our societies and we get to make our own decisions. And so God, does, Jesus doesn't sort of push himself into these family dynamics. He says, look, these are your issues. You need to resolve them yourself. But the point is that we have genuine decisions. We have genuine choices that we can make and genuine consequences of those choices. But God allows us in this lifetime to live that way. Um, and we will live with the consequences of it. But our authority is genuinely ours. Um, and then he moves on and gets to the heart of what the real issue is. Um, Jesus identifies that underlying issue as not so much this family dispute, but the underlying issue of uh, potentially greed, desire to be independent, to provide for ourselves. Perhaps this guy's brother was the older brother who was entrusted with the family wealth, and this younger brother wanted to do his own thing. We don't know. But the point is, and Jesus identifies this, is that life is not about our possessions, and our fulfillment and our security shouldn't come from those things. So, but he says it in quite strong terms. He says, watch out, be on your guard. Because that sense of trying to do our own thing, provide for ourselves, live for ourselves is a trap. And so Jesus is warning. This is the thing here you've got to avoid. Family disputes will come and go. You can sort them out yourself. But the bigger issue is trying to become self-reliant, self-dependent, thinking that I can provide for myself. And that's the trap that Jesus is warning about. We see it in many, many ways in life, we hear constant stories of wealthy people that are miserable, that can have anything they want, um, and are looking for new experiences or new boundaries or to push or ways to feel that their life has some sort of meaning. Um, there's a lot of speculation and, and comment in sort of media and social media at the moment about the, you know, the billionaires that died in the little submarine that imploded and how despite having all that wealth and power and ability to do things and, on earth and you know, shape the way companies run and they still like pushing the boundaries, looking for something new, looking for something exciting to fill that. And, um, you know, I don't know those people, I can't comment, but it demonstrates that point that looking in that material world is a trap. And in the society we're in, it's a really common trap. It's a very prevalent trap for us and we can easily be kind of seduced into a way of thinking that draws us away from that reliance on God to thinking, yep, I can do it on my own. I experienced that a little bit in my own life. Um, we had our own business for a long time. And when business was good and money came easily, you just find yourself changing your expectations. The next holiday you book needs to be a little bit better than the last one or a little bit more five-star or just a little bit nicer. And we weren't excessively materialistic people and you know, we never travelled first class or business class even or anything like that. But where you just find that everything kind of has to be better or it's disappointing. And you suddenly realise that you're putting your hope in things that you never thought you would. And then when, you know, the economy changes and business is tough and we're struggling, you realise, and I, I realised, wow, I'd become quite materialistic and I never intended to be. I've never aspired to own a Ferrari or, you know, travel in first class or any of those things. I wouldn't turn it down. But I realised I've just been drawn into this way of thinking. Not intentionally, it just happened, almost by osmosis. Um, 
And that's what Jesus is warning us about. That's why it's a warning, because it's subtle. So moving on uh, in this story, the parable, Jesus uh, says, the ground yielded an abundant harvest. Now, the parable could have said the man worked really hard and, and had a blessing or he was ingenious. It makes it clear that the ground produced harvest. And the ground is, is a really common theme throughout Scripture. And we come from the ground, from you know, the dust of the earth we're made. The ground is kind of the Lord's territory. And so it's saying you were blessed. You, know, you, you were given a blessing. And you could choose what you were going to do with it. And that raises the question that really is at the crux of all of, for all of us in this story is, what do I do with excess blessing? Because I know many people in this room don't necessarily feel excessively blessed today. But the fact that we are in this room, in this country, clothed, not struggling to eat, and I'm not saying everyone has an easy life, but to an extent... Looking historically and globally, we are excessively blessed compared to most. Um, I'm not saying that to you know, condemn anyone, but it's a question for us because especially now when we're dealing with cost of living issues and things like that, we feel genuinely oppressed, some of us, and yet we have to say, okay, well, how are we weighing up these issues of how we manage our blessing that God has given us? So we'll move on and come back to that. So uh, verse 18 um, if we can put that one up. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Not a bad plan. Possibly tearing down the old ones and building bigger ones. A bit excessive. You probably just could have built another small one. But anyway, he's preparing to save the grain. And you've got to remember, most of the people in Israel were very familiar with the, particularly the Torah, which we're going to look at in the coming weeks. They would have been familiar with the story of Joseph. And God gave Joseph the visions Uh, He interpreted the Pharaoh's dreams, sorry, and this led to the seven years of storage so that the Egyptians and through them the Israelites and all the nations around were blessed. So the idea of storing grain in the Israelite mentality is like, yeah, that's a great thing to do. It's a really good idea. So, so far, so good. Um, There's a little bit of a clue that maybe is going over the top with the pulling down the old barns and building big new ones that would be impressive, but that's not the real problem. Here it is. The problem is in verse 19. Um, I have plenty of grain laid up for many years. So sitting right there, this could go many ways at this point, this story. He could build a stockpile in case of future famine, as Joseph was instructed to do and told the the Egyptians to do, um, and save himself and others. That would be a good thing to do. He could also save a stockpile so that if he got sick and injured, there's no social security back then, so in the future he could feed himself, take responsibility, not be a burden on society, another good option. He could keep what spare and give to the needy and the widows that were around him then and there because there's always been plenty of poor and needy people throughout history as there are today. Plenty of good options, but he doesn't choose any of these things and he fails that test. He falls into the trap that Jesus is warning about. And he says, yep, I'm going to keep this for myself. It's mine. This is my windfall. I deserve to enjoy whatever it brings. And I'm going to focus on me. Possibly thinking he's living his best life right there. But the parable doesn't say, because you hoarded wealth, now you will die. It just says that he he was going to die. The problem is that 
he blew the chance that he had. Before that death, he could have chosen, what do I do with the grain? What do I do with my excess blessing? That was an opportunity for him to sow into eternity, to do something significant that would last beyond his lifetime, and he failed that test. And that's the challenge for us. Most of us aren't living in a lifestyle that's going to necessarily cause God to judge us and kill us. I mean, if you even believe that's how God operates. But we are living in a society that's constantly challenging us. Where do I put my focus? Where do I put my attention? What do I use my money and my talents for? And in our society, it's increasingly kind of self-indulgent. And it's almost encouraging that that's the right thing to do. You've worked hard. You deserve a luxurious five-star lifestyle, no matter who you are. It's just part of our psyche these days for many of us. So the Bible makes it clear that... um, Managing wealth in a way that glorifies God requires wisdom from us. Um, There's been a lot of different responses to this throughout history, and even in the Bible we see a whole range of ways that this issue has been handled. There was the rich young man that came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do? I want to follow you. And Jesus says, sell everything you have and and come follow me. And the rich man leaves disappointed because he was wealthy. And he didn't want to lose that. He didn't want to give up that wealth. And, and Jesus follows that up with the parable, you know, or the, the illustration that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. And growing up, I just kind of, you know, your kid, you just go, oh, okay, you can't be rich if you're a Christian. Like, that's what you take away when you're little. And my parents didn't discourage that way of thinking. Um, But it's not what it says, because straight after that, Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And it's saying to manage and steward wealth, whatever level of wealth we have, whether we consider all ourselves wealthy on a global level or whether we consider ourselves wealthy in this society's scale of measuring things. To do it in a way that glorifies God is difficult. But with God, all things are possible. There are lots of wealthy people in the New Testament. It's thought that many of the women that travelled with Jesus uh, were wealthy women that helped support the ministry, that bought food and provided um, whatever material needs were required by Jesus and the disciples. And it's not just the 12, there were a larger group that often travelled with them. Um, And they were their citizens and Jesus, it's not recorded that he ever told them, sell everything you have, follow me. In Paul's ministry and the ministry of the apostles after Jesus' resurrection, as the church grows from Jerusalem and spreads out into other parts of Israel and then beyond into the Gentile world, there's often prominent wealthy people that support the ministry. The church often met in the houses of wealthy people because they had houses large enough to host a meeting. Um, And again, they were never told, you shouldn't have this wealthy house, sell it. And the point is that these people had a degree of wealth but they were using it to glorify God. They weren't owned by their wealth. They were controlling their wealth and using it in a way that honoured God. Uh, And in a sense, they were the camel passing through the eye of the needle. They were doing something that was impossible, that that the world didn't seem to think was doable, but they were doing it. They had wealth and they were using it to glorify God. They were sowing into something that was eternal and they were willing to lose it all. Because being a Christian back then could cost you your life. It could definitely cost you your social standing. It wasn't a cool or honourable or respected thing to associate with believers of a God that thought, you know, a Jewish criminal rose from the dead and was now actually God. And it wasn't okay the way they met with slaves and people of different 
uh, ethnic backgrounds and religions and men and women all as equals. Um, that was very countercultural and not looked upon favourably by most people. So these wealthy people were willing to lose that status and potentially their lives and possessions to honour God. So it shows a model for, for us there that it is possible to do this well. Um, we've just got to find out how we should do it. Acts 2 outlines uh, another approach. And it's one you've probably heard of before. It's often referred to as the fellowship of the believers. And it says, all the believers were together. This is very early days of the church after Pentecost. And had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what they were doing was causing growth, and they were sharing and, and supporting one another. And it seems like a great example. It says they sold their possessions. And again, sort of young, diligent me reads that and thinks they sold all their property and all their possessions. It doesn't say that. It just says they sold some. So how much they did um, depended. And we see in other stories that some sold everything, some sold some. And I've heard teaching on this to say that was fantastic. It was people laying down their lives for other Christians and it grew a community and you can see the fruit of it, the church grows. It's hard to argue against that. I have heard other people preach that they overdid it and sold everything they had and a few years down the track were then a burden on the rest of the church, which was one of the reasons why Paul had to do such big collections of money for the Christians in Jerusalem because they'd kind of gone overboard and um, now couldn't support themselves. None of us were alive back then, so we can't, I don't know which it is. But it shows that even on these things, there's perspectives, different ways of looking at it. Uh, And then Christianity has wrestled with this issue ever since. Um, Throughout sort of uh, the Middle Ages, the history of Christianity in Europe is different belief systems developing, usually being crushed by the the church at the time. Uh, There was a movement of people called the Waldensians that thought it was right to sell everything that they had live in in community um, and that you didn't need a priest to tell you what to do. We could have fellowship with God and most of them were slaughtered for that belief system because they didn't honour the Pope and the Catholic Church at the time. Others, 100 years later, Francis of Assisi took a similar path um, but instead there was a different Pope by then and said, okay, actually we can use this and started a new order of monks, uh, Franciscan monks which are still alive today So they took a different approach and then the Franciscans thought, well, it's honourable to be poor. So they would beg for food. Begging was a part of their everyday um, routine and they thought that was a way to live free of the constraints of materialism. And yet Paul clearly says that that's not what you should do. If you need things, you should work. And Paul worked often, took time out of ministry to work to support himself so that other churches didn't have to support him. So we can see the scripture doesn't give us a clear one way of doing things. Uh, It's important for us to search our heart and ask, you know, what does God expect of us? Um, In more modern times, I've I've seen people and known people that will work part-time so that they have more free time to serve others or serve the church or work in a charity or do something like that. I've I've seen people that take lower-paid work at a charity um, so that their efforts of their work every day go into building something that has a, a community and hopefully an eternal benefit rather than just building their career. Um, some work really hard and retire early so that they can serve full-time in retirement. 
Um, there's others that work hard so that they can give generously. It ties into what we used to call the old uh, Protestant work ethic of work as hard as you can, save as much as you can, so that you can give as much as you can. So there's lots of different ways of approaching this, but some fall into the trap and just purely live for themselves. Um, and that's what Jesus is warning us against, and that's really the thing that we have to consider for ourselves is how am I handling this issue and am I gradually being seduced away from honouring God and sowing into eternity to just please myself? Because I don't think God wants us to beg like the Franciscans. But somewhere between that extreme and the extreme of keeping everything for ourselves and living purely for the moment is what God wants from us. And it will vary depending on who we are in our stage of life and, and all these things. There's a passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, um, verse 49. And, and reading the prophets and the Psalms is often super confusing. Um, and it makes God to seem really angry and intent on destroying people. But often what the, the prophets and the Psalms do is give us a little bit of background information to what's actually going on. The narrative in the Bible often tells us the facts, and it's often quite spare with the details. We often don't know what people's motivations are or why God did what he did or certain characters in the stories do what they do. But we often get a lot of insight through the Psalms and the prophets. And this is an example of that. Ezekiel 16, 49. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. We've all probably heard the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it wasn't a nice place. But this is what's identified by Ezekiel. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. So Ezekiel makes it quite clear, and in this passage, Ezekiel 16, the prophet is talking to the nation of Israel and talking about how far they have gone from what God called them to, how far they've drifted away, uh, and then says all these other places are probably going to be better off than, than you because you know God will call you to account. But the thing that's identified with Sodom is that they didn't help the poor and needy when they had means to do so. So the inequality of wealth was really important to God. It mattered a lot to him. And it's an issue we're seeing in our society today, again, is inequality of wealth, that division of society between the wealthy and the least wealthy through all sorts of things, from executive salaries to property prices to all sorts of factors in our community. So it's relevant to us. Um, care for the vulnerable is really precious to God. Um, there's the well-known parable about people going into heaven and, and, and Jesus saying, you know, thank you, you, you served me. And they say, well, God, when did, Jesus, when did we ever serve you? And he said, every time you, know, you gave a cup of water to someone who needed it, you gave that to me. Every time you clothed the needy, you were clothing me. And so we see in that attitude towards the less fortunate, the attitude to what we do with our excess blessing, or even not our excess, with what we do with what we have of our own is extremely precious to God um, to the point that Sodom failing that test led to their destruction. And it's similar on a national level because we live in a society that really has fallen into this trap. We are one of the wealthiest nations on earth. Um, per capita, our economy is enormous. Um, our wealth per person is enormous. Our disposable income per person is enormous. Now, I know that that's not spread evenly across our society and there are people that have genuine struggles. Um, but it's an issue for us, and it has been throughout history. 
God had a covenant with the people of Israel and said, if you serve me, I'll bless you. And, and King David um, was the first king to really do that well, and God blessed Israel. And then his son Solomon, God blessed him. And it's considered that the kingdom of Israel under Solomon was potentially the wealthiest kingdom that's ever existed in history. Um, the stockpiles of gold and silver and the chariots and the horses, all the things they had. Um, you know, even if you factor in net current value of dollars and inflation and all that, it probably still is the wealthiest kingdom that's ever existed. And yet, were they faithful to God because of that blessing? No, they fell into that trap. Solomon fell into that trap. He had an enormous throne with lions either side of the stairs going up to the throne. He had a corridor with gold shields. All the excesses of wealth that God specifically warned them against and said not to do. He married women from other countries. He had 700 wives. He was, in many people's eyes today, living his absolute best life. He was, you know, he had the grain in storehouses and he was keeping all of it. And it was the very clear beginning of the end for Israel. After he died, the kingdom was split in two. And it was all downhill from there. A few little bright patches, but Israel failed that test. And history shows nations receiving the gospel, taking it on board, massive blessings, hospitals, education, stable government, food, provision for the poor. But unfortunately, then it becomes individualism and selfishness and decadence and decline. And we are in that cycle now. This is the environment we're living in. So it's dangerous for us because they're the signals we're being surrounded by is live for ourselves. It's right to keep everything you have. You earned it. You, you, it's yours. No one can tell you what to do with the stuff that's yours. But Jesus says it's a trap. Paul talks clearly there will be people that enter heaven with weeping as if escaping through flames, as if by the skin of their teeth. And they'll look back on their life and say that I had an opportunity to sow into eternity and I blew it. And we don't want that to be us. Now, I think I've made it clear. I'm not saying give up everything and go and beg. There's a right sense. The Bible says a worker deserves his wages. You know, we deserve some of the good things we have. God made a beautiful world for us to enjoy. But the trap for us is, are we going to live in this kind of sensual, self-indulgent world and let that shape our beliefs? Or are we going to try and be the camel that gets through the eye of the needle? Are we going to try and do the impossible and manage the wealth that God has given us well? And what that looks like is different for each one of us. The key issue is, do we realise that this is important and are we thinking about the eternal or the immediate? Um, and then we can look at our lives and say, what does the, how, you know, the way I spend my time, the way I spend my money, what does that say about me? If an outside observer looked at my life without me telling them, I'm a Christian, I love God, everything I do is for God, it's so important to me. If they didn't know that and then someone just watched this like a Truman Show and you were it, would the viewers know that you actually value the eternal more than the present? Would they see that in the way that you... Use your talents and your time and your money and everything you have, or would they just see someone that's the same as everyone else? Now, I can't answer that for you, fortunately. <laughs> and it's challenging for me as well. But we can wrestle with these things now when we have a chance to do something about them, or we can just cruise along on autopilot, 
and have a nice life and get to the end of it and go, hang on, I fell into that trap. I could have done so much more. I could have glorified God in so many different ways. And in doing so, fulfilled that purpose. You know, Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life must lose it, but whoever really wants to find his life must lay it down. And we have that opportunity in little ways every day. Um, God has unique plans and purposes for each one of us. So what that looks like for you will most likely be different to what it looks like for me. But we are a community. So if we open up to one another and have the benefit of that, we can challenge and encourage and direct and guide each other as much as we're open to. Um, but it's really important that we never judge each other then. You know, condemnation is such an easy thing that goes with Christianity and religion, and we're definitely not that type of church. It's really important that we open up to one another but never look down on each other. We need to ask God for his wisdom. We need to say, Lord, how do I handle what you've given me? It may feel like God's given you almost nothing. Well, what do you do with your almost nothing? It may feel like you've been given a lot. It's like, God, oh, well, how do I deal with that? These are questions that only you can answer, but I think it's what Jesus is wanting to think about because, like, like I said, the, he didn't do anything wrong necessarily, the guy in the parable, for building big barns to store the grain. It doesn't say that's why he died. But he blew it. We're living in an age where it's easy for us to get distracted and live in the short term and all of a sudden we'll look back and go, oh, I had my opportunity and I didn't make the most of it. And so I think what Jesus is saying in this passage is don't let that be you. Think about what we're doing, but be wise and ask God's assistance. Because you know, I showed the examples through history of churches trying to do things, some of them crazy, some of them that led to suffering, some of them clearly not what God was asking them to do. So we can only do this well with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. So um, he's going to lead us in the last song. As he plays through the intro, just think, like this is not a condemning message. This is a reminder that we have something of eternal value Let's value it that way and let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us do it well.